Hello, everybody, and welcome to this event, which the Institute for Government is delighted to be hosting in partnership with the Association for Project Management. Uh, we're, I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government. And today, uh, there are lots and lots of panels on net zero. Indeed, a panel I was just at, uh, one of the ministers said that he thought this was almost an energy conference rather than a Conservative Party conference, because there was such a big presence from the energy industry and so many panels talking about net zero. But we're focusing on what might actually be called the really difficult bit of net zero, uh, the bit about actually making it happen, the delivery side, uh, and net zero as a big project management challenge. I mean, the Prime Minister has said that he is critical, sick of politicians who talk up targets without having plans to actually make them happen. So hopefully the Prime Minister has sent cohorts of people from number 10 to this event so they can take back the advice from our fantastic panel. So I will just introduce the, the very panel here. So on my far right, uh, we have Professor Adam Bodison, OBE. Adam is the Chief Executive Officer of the Association for Project Management. Then to my immediate right, we have Lord Maud of Horsham. Uh, my notes say he was a former Minister of State for Trade and Investment and Minister for the Cabinet Office, but many of you who uh, were close observers of the coalition government uh, will know that one of the things that Francis Maud was extremely hot on in government was civil service reform and also instituted a whole range of changes to improve the quality of project management by both civil servants and I think also Minister, so he's an excellent addition on his project management focus. Then on my immediate left, I'm probably, you know, just taking a bit of time out between uncorking champagne bottles today, is Alistair Evans, Director of Corporate and Government Affairs at Rolls-Royce SMR. Keep it as that SMR because Rolls-Royce heard this morning that, well, they probably heard earlier, but the rest of us heard this morning that Rolls-Royce were one of six technologies selected to go to the next phase of the government's SMR program. So we'll be very interested to hear from him. And last but absolutely by no means least, Virginia Crosby MP. Virginia is the Member of Parliament for Innis Mon, uh, Anglesey, uh, and is, I think, the MP with a huge, big constituency interest in nuclear. Um, you know, fantastic site for nuclear, lots of job capabilities. So. Actually, one of the big sort of objections in many cases to things is to actually get local consent and to get planning. So Virginia's incredibly well placed to talk about that. So the format of this is going to be, we're not going to have long speeches from the panel. Uh, we're going to kick off with a question to all of them. We'll have a bit of a chit chat, but we really want to make sure that as many of you get a chance to put your questions and make your comments to the panel as possible. And there will be a roving mic to do that with my colleague Cameron up there. Yeah, it's waving and we'll be bouncing around. But let's just kick off uh, with short and snappy and on time, on budget answers, uh, which is one of the things that's always quite difficult to do. Um, so Adam, you're from the Association of Project Management, uh, Net Zero, one of the biggest project program challenges uh, that the government faces. So what do you think the government really needs to be grappling with if it's going to get delivery of net zero right? 
Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, so we could talk about challenges for this entire session, I think, because there are a lot of challenges. Um, you know, we, we, we need to be kind of honest about that. But I think uh, for the purposes of keeping my answer concise, as you've asked for, um, I'll, I'll just pick out three very specific ones. So stability, skills and consistency. Uh, by the way, all words that I've heard a lot about in almost every session about anything over the last couple of days. Um, so on stability, you know, we when we had the Prime Minister's uh, roll back on the, the net zero uh, pledges. Uh, last week I was sitting in an, an airport lounge in having just come from another government uh, in another part of the world who were very excited about what we were doing over here. We were really talking up the net zero stuff and then it just kind of collapsed. And that causes big problems for those long-term uh, long projects. Um, so, you know, we've heard a lot about HS2 the last few days. Every time that we have to change the scope of HS2, even if it's de-scoping it, you know, to make it deliver less, it ends up costing more. You know, it ends up running late and it costs more money. Um, so, so, we, so we have to be uh, aware of the kind of the stability point. Um, on the skills gap, um, I think it's not a small profession that we have here, the project profession. We've actually got more than two million full-time equivalent project professionals in the UK alone, contributing more than 150 billion GVA a year to the economy. That is huge, but it's still not enough. Um, because if you look at almost every report that's come out of the National Audit Office and other parts of government, they're saying that there are big uh, project delivery risks and delivery assurance risks because of uh, not, an insufficient number of people and those people not necessarily having the, 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 the right skills. So we've got to do more on that and I, and, and I would say that the focus there needs to be on the long term. So we heard a lot about apprenticeships and university courses being the answer. Yes, that's a long term uh, aim, but still how many project management apprenticeships and, and degree courses are there? How many people are choosing that as a career of first choice? The vast majority of people I know in the profession come into the profession sideways somewhere from, an, from having done something else first. So I think we've got to change the game on that. And then lastly, I think it's just around um, uh, policy uh, alignment. If I look at just how different parts of the UK are, are trying to uh, tackle net zero, I was up in Scotland not mm -hmm. so long ago, you know, they're saying they want to go further uh, than any of the kind of uh, international uh, expectations, you know, where they want to do more and do it quickly. We seem to be going in the opposite direction. What that means is you get this misalignment of, of ambition and expectations between the four nations, which actually takes away some of the opportunities to collaborate um, and, and gain efficiencies of, of, of scale and economies of scale. So, the, so there is a problem there. And also we're taking some of the capacity out of the system. Sizewell C, I'll give you an example. Sizewell C, the environmental impact assessment of that was almost 45,000 pages long, and it's still going to go to judicial review on environmental grounds. You know, if you imagine just that alone, if you put that capacity into actually delivering net zero better, would that actually be a better use of money? So I think I'll probably pause there. I'll just finish on one positive, if I may, though, because I recognise I've just set out lots of negative challenges. The one thing we, we have in this country which is really incredible is the, uh, is the IPA, the Infrastructure and Projects Authority. They are a real force for good within government. And when I talk to uh, governments outside of the UK, the one thing they keep telling me is, how did that get set up? How can we do something which has a similar function uh, uh, to, to that? Because they recognise that that is one of the, the, the big positives we have in the system uh, to, 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 to help with that project delivery, and particularly on the net zero side of things. That sounds like a fantastic segue <laughs> into uh, Lord Lord. Um, the IPA, Cabinet Office, Treasury owned, I think, yep. dual parented. Was it? Did you invent it? Did you set it up, or was it 
Did it just predate you? No, I don't think I invented it, but I did set it up. Uh, and it was a, it was then the major project, MPA, major yeah. projects authority, subsequently merged mm. with the infrastructure partnership or whatever it was called. Um, and um, and it was very much kind of reporting to me on a day-to-day basis, but with a, a dotted line to the Treasury as well. And it was really because we, we found that the failure rate of big government projects was about 70%, failing on at least one of timetable, budget, quality. Um, and if, if, if you miss any one of those, then the payback is compromised. Mm. Um, uh, uh, and we found that actually a lot, 70% were failing on at least one of those and quite a lot of them on all three. Um, and, and that's because they were all marking mm. their own homework um, and, and amazingly saying, yeah, our project's going really well. And, and partly that's mm. optimism bias, which you always mm. get, and that's understandable. But it was also the pe- that a lot of projects were being run by people who'd never run a project before or, and were not likely mm. to do so ever again. So they weren't set up to, no- to notice when things were going mm. off track. Um, and so uh, what the MPA did was to provide sen- consistent oversight from the center uh, of the pro- 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 progress of projects to enable in something reasonably close to real time so that when uh, a project was or, pro- or a reform program was seen to be going off track, then there was an opportunity to intervene quickly before the damage becomes irreparable. Um, Coming back sometime later to look at how it was working, I found that the mandate had been changed, um, this was in 2020, to allow each department to choose which of its projects would be part of the major project's portfolio. So you were allowed to choose which of your projects was going to be subjected to this scrutiny. Uh, we did persuade. That was one example of how reforms, unless you're really vigilant and you stay on the case, how things regress. Uh, and that has now been that has now been put right. We also set up the major projects leadership academy um, to uh, st- start to kind of uh, rectify the deficiencies in uh, in capability, uh, and that is still going strong. And one of the great things that has happened actually since my time is that they have a course for ministers, and large numbers of ministers have been through that, and that's incredibly um, helpful. Um, but the truth is that um, it. Whitehall is still a culture where these, these skills are not as highly valued um, as policy skills. Um, and um, uh, some time ago, in I think 2013, towards the end of my time in the Cabinet Office, uh, I wanted to put in place a programme where all permanent secretaries who had a 10-year or so horizon in front of them would go through three-month top leadership courses at the best business schools in the world, in Harvard, Stanford, INSEAD, etc. Huge resistance from the system uh, on the basis that oh, well, these courses cost $70,000. These are for people you're putting in charge of tens of billions of pounds of budget and projects. Um, and it's simp- and I've ground down the opposition, but it still didn't happen. Um, and so we were putting people in charge of these huge budgets and huge projects woefully unprepared uh, for the task. And some explanation for this, a a meeting I was doing earlier, um, uh, where the organization had done some research on all of this, and they talked to a permanent secretary who said, the problem is, we all want to be Jeremy Haywood, not John Manzoni. For those not familiar, (laughs) Jeremy Haywood's the classic, brilliant policy mandarin. Um, 
John Manzoni was a very successful, mm. high-performing mm. business executive, mm. chief executive, mm. who I brought into mm. government to be chief executive of the civil service. And he strove mightily to drive these kinds of things forward. But it's not a culture which is conducive to valuing implementation skills. Um, and, uh, and, that's the, and, and how you solve that is a huge, deep-seated problem. But the first thing you need is to have someone in charge of the civil service who comes from an implementation background. Because although John Manzoni was uh, chief executive, he wasn't head of the civil service. And the power, to the extent that any head of the mm. civil service has power, which is itself very limited, mm. resides with someone who is a policy mandarin, not an implementer. And until that changes, and that signal is seen to be clear and uh, immutable, this problem will not be solved. I'm going to come back to some of the issues that Francis raises, but I just want to move down, down the line. Um, Virginia, if we move specifically to look at one of the big elements of the government's net zero plans, I'm very interested if you share added interpretation that, uh, that the Prime Minister's speech was indeed a rollback of ambition on net zero. But if you look at that in the nuclear sector, what, what from a sort of, you know, your constituency perspective, what do you see as the big delivery challenges about getting, you know, getting, you know, what the Prime Minister might describe as spades in the ground and then the building actually there? Good afternoon, everyone. I'm the Member of Parliament for Anasmorn, which I believe is the best constituency uh, in the UK. Now, Anglesey is known as Energy Island. We've got wind, we've got wave, we've got solar, we've got tidal, we have hydrogen. And if I've got anything to do with it, we'll have new nuclear at Wilver. Wilver is, uh, is well thought to be one of the best nuclear sites in the UK, if not Europe. Now, why? Why is it, why is it such a great site? Well, it's really good geology. Uh, it's by the sea, very, very stable geology. Uh, we've had nuclear there before. So you've got that, um, that social license. You've got people actually want the jobs. They want, that, uh, they, they want to have that good employment. Um, and also, you've got the skills. And I think that's absolutely critical. And I think, um, I think Adam made that point very eloquently. But when I travel around the island, young people say to me, say, Virginia, we want to stay on the island. We, it's really important for our community, and it's important for the Welsh language. When I go around the country seeing other nuclear power stations, when I go to Hinkley, I meet uh, apprentices from Anglesey. I meet Welsh uh, apprentices. And they say, Virginia, we want to come home. We don't want to live and work five hours away from our family. So really, for me, new nuclear it is really about the jobs. I know we can talk about the energy security. I know we can talk about net zero. Uh, but new nuclear at Wilbur could be potentially 10,000 construction jobs. That will be transformational, not only for my constituency of Anasmore, and that will be transformational for North Wales. Now, the site itself, you could have um, large gigawatt um, uh, nuclear there. Um, the companies like EDF um, are interested, um, KEPCO, the Koreans are interested and of course Bechtel and Westinghouse. But it's also a great site for small modular reactors and Alistair's been around the island with me uh, several times and so has Jihi Hachachi. So it's an absolutely fantastic site. It's the site where they launched the 120 million pound uh, future nuclear enabling fund. So why, why have we got all but one of our nuclear power stations is going offline in the next decade? Why, when we've had, uh, we've had the great British um, uh, uh, 
uh, energy security strategy, which specifically mentions Wilbur, why we've had the 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution. Why have we not built more nuclear? Well, the reality is we haven't had a plan. And I think, I don't know how many of you were at the launch of Great British Nuclear at the Science Museum earlier this summer. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, headed up by Gwen Parry-Jones, who lives on Anglesey, which is great, great for me, uh, very, very coincidentally. Um, and I think what, what we need to do is have a plan. These are very expensive projects that take a, an awful amount of time. And it's that, <clears throat> that we need to have a fleet mentality. We need to have a strategy. We need to, the government has a, a, the ambition of going from uh, for, of a nuclear being 24 um, gigawatts by 2050. We're currently at six. We need a plan to work out how we can get from six gigawatt to 24. How are we going to get those 18 gigawatt? What is that mix? Is it, uh, you know, is it large nuclear, small? AMR, what, what is that mix? And the re reason we need to have that plan is because with these large cap, uh, capital expenditure uh, projects, uh, we need to be able to give uh, surety to the supply chain and to the companies so that they can actually invest. They can invest uh, in their skills. We need to be talking to uh, students in primary schools now. If I need 10,000 people working on Wilver, we've got people working on Sizewell C, we've got people working on Hinkley. We absolutely need to be investing in our, in our skills force now. So I'm, it's a really, really exciting time for the nuclear sector. You'll hear a lot of sort of negativity uh, here, but actually what I want to say to you, it is such an exciting time. Uh, we've got all of those pieces of the jigsaw together and with Great British Nuclear, for the first time ever, we've got a nuclear minister, Andrew Bowie, and I for one, I'm so excited. It was I was absolutely delighted when the Prime Minister mentioned Wilbur uh, last week when he was interviewed about a uh, conference. Um, both Prime Ministers have visited uh, Wilbur, and I'm determined to do everything I can to try and get new nuclear to Wilbur. So, Alastair, um, from the point of view of a private company ready to invest, yep. developing a technology, what do you need to see from government in terms of giving you sufficient assurance that actually you can take this off, you know, prototyping through technology, and actually you'll ever get a chance to deploy it at the sufficient scale to deliver that big <laughs> on angles <laughs> other site you know other sites are probably available too but you know but what would actually it take to get it all through yeah thanks jill um best thing about going last is pre-prepared remarks totally out the window so so g genuine thoughts on what needs to happen to to make it real um I'll focus on what Lord Moore said around implementation. I, I wrote down accountability. So I worked in the nuclear sector and the large programs when we were aiming to build 16 gigawatts by 2025. And to Virginia's point, that was a target, but there was no plan. It was down to business. It was entirely on uh, the private sector to deliver almost unilaterally at arm's length. That has shifted dramatically. And Virginia sat on many panels with me before where I've complained about the lack of pace and government clarity is not there. I think we're getting there. I think today's announcement that uh, six technologies have been down-selected is, is really important. Government's hit the first uh, timetable target. Next target is by spring, they will announce which companies have been successful and which companies will deploy. And then by the summer, uh, we'll be into contracts. That makes it real. That means I can go to Chris here at NAMRC and talk about putting in real supply chain plans uh, to make sure we're maximizing UK content. If I go on to one of the whinges, apologies in advance, Virginia, mm -hmm. and it's, a, it's something you will have heard in every single room on infrastructure, planning. 
Now, mm -hmm. it, it took three years to plan Hinkley Point. It's taken six years to plan Sizewell. Adam talked about the 40-odd thousand pages for, for one report. There are examples in offshore wind of 10-year planning for a one-year build time. If it takes me six years to go through planning, that's longer than it will take to build the reactor. Mm. Is that right? I, I would argue it, it's not. So it really will take uh, accountability, leadership, uh, and a shift in how we do and deliver major infrastructure in the UK if we are to realise this 25% uh, new nuclear commitment. But there really does seem to be the appetite to do it now. So I'm quite interested, just on the planning point, I'm going to question to all of you, Absolutely everybody, every big infrastructure project in the UK seems to hit problems with planning and everybody says our planning system really, really gets in the way of doing decent project delivery. What, obviously, you know, we've had things like nationally significant projects, you know, these big strategies for critical infrastructure. We've got the National Infrastructure Commission. So... Have we now got the systems in place to deliver really quite a lot of additional power, not just nuclear, but also renewables, things like that, at scale over the next couple of decades to meet the net zero targets? Or does the planning system still need a further overhaul? Adam. Right, thank you. <coughs> so I, I, I think planning is a complex issue. Uh, I think it's not just about which projects we do, mm. but it's also about how you do the projects. Mm. But there is definitely lessons that could be learned from planning that's already mm. taken place on previous projects over many, mm. many years. And I think what government could be better at doing is taking all of those projects at scale, the data from those, and using them to inform the planning of new mm. projects to dramatically reduce uh, the burden that falls on the private sector. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that would help on the accountability side as well. So, Francis, how did you factor in sort of, you know, because that's a sort of mix of sort of policy and project management, isn't it? trying to navigate things through the planning system? Yeah, and I, and I don't know what the answer is. Uh, and, it, 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 and we tend to think in all these things where you're kind of uniquely bad at it. Um, and it, that, that any mature democracy mm. has issues with mm. planning. Um, but ours seem to be worse. And I don't know what the answer is, but... Um, the, but it must be possible to do things um, more quickly, um, and I don't know enough about it to know to know what the, the, the problems are. But I mean, it isn't you know planning is an issue for sure. Um, but we're also very slow at catching up with things. I mean, I, I was saying to um, to, to um, Alistair earlier the. Um, when I was briefly Minister for Trade, on the, I was on my glide path out of government. Um, uh, I got very enthused, this is 2015-16, I got very enthused about small mod mm. modular nuclear. Um, just seemed to me, here is a technology, you know, UK mm. invented civil nuclear, mm. but we kind of lost mm. all the big nuclear mm. capability. Um, but here's something we're really good at. You know, Rolls-Royce has mm. been making small nuclear reactors um, for a long, long time. We know kind of mm. how to do this. We uh, uh, And... Um, and I tried to get the Treasury um, and what was then DEC interested mm. in this, total blank wall. And there were two technologies around, energy mm. technologies. Uh, that SMRs mm. was one. The other was Tide. Uh, and mm. I thought, you know, again, there is no place mm. in the world that has so much exploitable mm. Tide as the UK. Uh, and again, with both of these things, you've got a technology which is capable of being developed 
with government support mm. to become ex an exportable exportable assets and to, why would you not go with a blank wall for both mm. of them um, and so frustrating and for with all the planning reform in the world mm. if you've got um, an official mentality at the center of government which is which is just blanking mm. out new things of that kind then it's really very depressing um, because the things aren't even getting even remotely close to the planning stage. Um, they're not they're ever getting more than becoming more than a twinkle in a few people's eyes. So, Alistair, are you worried that planning might be a barrier to deployment of SMR? I mean, would GB Nuclear help you through the planning system? Yeah, so, so the hope is that GB Nuclear will be able to play a role, certainly in that early stage planning. I think the way, the way that I always think about planning is like a tortoise shell and more and more layers have grown and grown and grown and that gets thicker and thicker and harder mm. and harder because you involve more groups, more entities mm. um, and, and bring more groups in. What do you do? Can, can you just rip it up and start again? Mm. Well, then you're into judicial reviews and, and five or six, seven years of redrafting laws. And, and so it doesn't feel to me like starting again is where we're going to end up. So can you work with can it be filleted appropriately without watering down the current requirements? Um, there has to, but there has to be an approach, uh, which again, to Adam's point, takes the learning of all of these various um, initiatives and planning processes that have gone through. Um, Wilf is a great example. It's been planned for four or five years. Um, and yet, if I were to go, if I were to be fortunate enough to be able to build a project on Anglesey, snakes and ladders style, I start mm. at the beginning again, even though mm. five years of data exists, I'm right down at the beginning of the board again. So again, there, there must be different ways that we can work with government and GBN and the IPA and others to, to deliver this in a different way. So Virginia, you've given us a very sort of, you know, compelling case for the benefits of new nuclear in Innesmon which I should pronounce honest, better. Honest Morn. Honest Morn. Honest Morn. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, but are there local objections to this? I mean, you know, will there, is there an yeah. issue with local consent? Are there any holdouts against this vision of Energy Island that you've been expressing from maybe some people who think it's a slightly untried technology then not totally convinced that they want to live next door to a nuclear power plant? It's not quite what they envisaged when they bought their retirement cottage there. Um, I think the sort of um, easy answer to that is um, I arrived on the, on the island the day nominations closed for the 2019 general election. I had three weeks. Um, you're allowed 12 people at the count. I didn't know 12 people to invite. I stood on a mandate to do everything I could to deliver new nuclear yeah. to Wilver. Um, I was the biggest shock of the general election, certainly to my husband. I was a paper candidate. Uh, so I would say there's an awful lot of support on the yeah. island. Um, but I think following on from Alistair's point, I think it's really important that we have um, opportunity for people in the community. This is a serious point about the, the DCOs, the development consent orders, and also the GDA. There is an opportunity uh, for the community to, uh, to to buy into the project, but also critically the sort of section 106 type um, uh, aspects of the of the DCO are absolutely vital. Uh, you, we have to carry people with us. Um, I'm known as a bit of a, a planning rebel um, if you look at my voting uh, record, and it's something that I really think is very important. I was delighted that Claire Cotino, um, the Secretary of State, when she said uh, this morning about actually having um, solar on industrial uh, industrial buildings. Um, I think one one of the ways forward. Could 
could be, and Alistair and I have spoken about this, uh, with the, I was on the financing bill committee for the regulated asset base finance model, uh, uh, finance uh, legislation. My background is finance. And one of the things that we actually mm. discussed was actually doing things in parallel. And I think that is, that is an opportunity to actually save time uh, within this sector, because if we can save time, we're saving money. And parallel is actually the big lesson from the vaccines task force, isn't it? Mm. Which is you don't do things Absolutely. in sequence, you, yeah. which I think is one of some really interesting learnings to apply. Um, Adam, just before we go to the audience, this issue of skills. Yes. If you were summoned in by France's successor, probably plus seven or whatever, given the rate of churn of government ministers, uh, to say, what skills do we need in the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero across government to actually you know, deliver the project of net zero well, what would you be saying they need to well, skill up on? Well, I think, I think there, are two, there are two aspects. I think, first of all, we actually have a lot of the skills already, um, but we don't recognise that those skills are transferable between, between sectors. Mm -hmm. So if I, if, just to give you an analogy on this, mm -hmm. if I was, a, I don't know, a, a chartered accountant, nobody would be worried if I was you know, went from being a chartered accountant in the energy industry to going to be a chartered accountant in the health service, for example. Mm. That would be just an mm. okay thing to do mm. because I'm, my profession mm. is an accountant. But when it comes to project professionals, for some reason we say, well, if you've been, you know, if I'm looking for a project professional to deliver on energy mm. projects, I can only look at people who've previously delivered energy projects. Well, I think that's a fundamental misconception of of the profession itself. Mm. So I think we have some of the skills mm. already, but we don't tap mm. into them well enough. Um, on the issue of kind of new skills above and beyond the standard ones that you would get as a project mm. professional, I think one of the key ones I referred to before is around project data analytics. Um, so we're not saying mm. that project professionals all now need to be data analysts, that's a separate profession, mm. but I do think they need to be data literate. Um, and, and I think, what that looks like in a very practical mm. sense differs between the different types of roles. If you're in a, 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 a risk role, mm. for example, I think that would be quite different than if you were in a kind of broader project leadership role. Um, and on the broader point on data, I do think there is more that needs to be done to um, to have data flowing better through the supply chain. Um, uh, mm. Because at, at the minute, uh, you know, you mm. think about the commercials mm. of this, um, there's this issue, uh, I think, strategic mm. misrepresentation or lying, mm. as I would call it, yeah. uh, where, where actually what's the incentive to be really honest about projects that are going wrong if actually you know you're going to get your contract taken away next year? I mean, you referred to it a bit before. Mm. If it's a kind of more of a shared mm. risk, shared reward mm. type situation, more of a collaboration, then actually you will get more of that transparency and honesty and actually you're going to get better delivery assurance, including on the net zero projects as well. And Francis, I mean, the public sector does do some very big projects. Do you think that we've done enough to create a big cadre of some of the world's best project managers working in government? And where are the barriers to that so they can take that on? Or should we just be, you know, every time we get a big project, should we be looking at someone who works for some big external company to come in and run it? What would be your model for the project management profession in government? Well, it needs to be led from the centre. Um, because um, uh, when we created mm. or started mm. to create in a rather makeshift hand-to-mouth way the functional model where mm. the, cr the cross-cutting functions, financial management, mm. procurement, IT and digital, project mm. management, all this, uh, were strongly led from the center of government. Now, this is the Treasury's mm. um, theology is inimical to this because they say that confuses the silo um, model. Um, of accountability um, and 
but, but unless you do that, you, you are condemning yourself with all of these um, functions. Because in project management mm. is not just about projects. Mm. Uh, it's about procurement, financial mm. management, and these skills are all absolutely crucial uh, to it. And if you don't have a strong functional model, what you're condemning yourself to is having this capability uh, scattered and dispersed across government with the result that you have no one place where you've got a high-end uh, capability. Now, um, you, you don't need to do it all from the center of government, but there needs to be one place mm -hmm. where is that hardcore critical mass of capability. Uh, and that's as true for projects. And of course, that should be the MPA, now IPA, um, where they should have a mandate to insist um, in uh, assessing and accrediting project managers and project leaders right across government. Um, uh, it should be, and this has been recommended but not implemented, um, it should be for the IPA to approve any change in the senior responsible owner for a government project um, so they don't get kind of randomly handed over. We found there was one massive MOD project where the senior responsible owner uh, was changing every six months. I mean, this n no organization elsewhere would tolerate that. I mean, the, the, the inability to have kind of continuity or deep knowledge um, and so on. And, and it is still this culture. We're 55 years on from the Fulton Committee uh, report of, on the civil service in 1968, where they identified uh, too much reliance on generalists, not enough focus on specialisms, and on understanding data and, and, and management information. And we still have far too much of the same thing. It is that thing, you know, we all want to be Jeremy Hayward, not we don't want to be the implementer. Okay, we're going to go to questions and then I'm going to come back with, I've got some additional questions there, but we've got quite a lot of questions. Let's take, let's take a couple. Um, Cameron, let's do this side. We've got two on this side. Let's do, let's go this side, then we'll go to that side. Yes, gentlemen, there. Yeah. And if you could tell us who you are, just because we're sort of nosy and it's interesting. <laughs> So I'm Graham Winch, Alliance Manager Business School. Um, just uh, uh, in a Transport for North meeting earlier, Hugh, Hugh uh, Merriman MP, um, responding to the possible announcement about HS2, shifted the emphasis outside government and said, quote, not, not enough project management expertise within major projects. In other words, He's shifting it actually to the supply side and saying the supply side let us down over HS2. And so I'd like the panel, all your different views, to um, respond to that because I think it's a, it's a very serious allegation and I think it does need a, a strong response. Okay, we'll, we'll come forward here. Yes. Uh, hi, um, Chris Book from the Nuclear AMRC. Mm. So I just want to pick up on the point around supply chain because mm. actually what worries me most, it's great to see the progress with the SMR selection process and GBM. Mm. The government will be single-mindedly focused on mm. getting to that contract point next summer. What worries me most about that is that in the intervening period, they will not be thinking about the supply chain, the R&D, the testing, the demonstration that needs to be put in place in order to secure 
the maximum economic value for the UK. And this will be driven very much by a view that they should not interfere uh, or do anything which might risk putting the price up or bringing any additional risk. In fact, they'll have the opposite result. They will end up with a, 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 an SMR program which is subject to the vagaries of international supply chains and global markets. And there'll be a sucking of teeth. And company. I, I'm not looking at Alistair in particular, but they're sucking of teeth. Like, well, it's going to cost a bit more, Minister. It's not going to deliver quite the UK content we thought. It's going to take a bit longer. There's long lead times and so on. Okay. Well, let's, let's knock HS2 on its head. Ad, I, knew, Adam, I knew it was coming to Adam, me to start off. Yeah, Association for Project were... Management. <laughs> no, where's the pro is there a project management failure in HS2? And if so, where? And maybe what would be the lessons for net zero? Sure. Well, well, I, well I'll start by saying I'm obviously not a spokesperson for HS2. But um, mm -hmm. I, I would just make two points. Um, I think the first thing, I just go back to what I said right mm -hmm. at the beginning earlier on, is the supply chain has a good, uh, of, of projects in general, mm -hmm. have a pretty good track record of spinning up uh, expertise and capability and capacity mm. when they need to. The thing that stops them doing that is uncertainty. Um, and we've had a lot of uncertainty when it comes to HS2. I know there's the particular mm. point that we're hearing about over the last few days uh, that, that there may or may not be an announcement coming. Mm. But actually, even before that, right since it's, since, mm. since the outset of HS2, it's been you know, blighted by uh, possible changes and where's it going to stop mm. and what phases are going to happen or not happen and so on. So all of that put, I, I think, hesitancy into the investment decisions that might be made uh, on the supply side. So I think that's just, just the first point. The second point I would make, and this is from my mm. own personal visits to various mm. HS2 sites and talking to them about some of these issues. Mm. I think, to be fair, they have put some things in place. Mm. So one example of a really positive mm. thing I've seen is that when, you know, when they're thinking about the kind of tier one, tier mm. two suppliers, um, they actually fund... Uh, an aspect of the procurement process mm. there to actually have second choice suppliers waiting in the wings. So should part of their mm. supply chain fall away, they can actually mobilize another, mm. uh, kind of repli mm. replicate that part of the supply chain with another supplier and actually pay them to be kind of ready. Mm. So so they so they do mm. get the kind of, um, uh, the efficiency uh, of, of keeping the work going. So I think it would be unfair to say that they haven't put anything in place and they'd, you know, let, let, mm. let, they're responsible for everything that's happened up to this point. Francis, what's your take on HS2? Well, I think it's a, an embarrassment, really, that um, we're a long, thin country. Japan mm. is a long, thin country that got high-speed rail 50 years ago. Um, and uh, it took, it's taken us 40 years to get going on it, and we're now about to stop it, um, apparently. Um, and um, I don't know anywhere near enough about how it's been managed, but there... Uh, and I, uh, but I've read reports mm. about uh, which I are reasonably confident mm. are correct that our unit cost for building rail mm. and roads in this country mm. is a multiple of similar countries in Europe. Mm. France and Germany mm. do these things a lot more cheaply than, than we do. I don't know what lies mm. behind that, um, but it's a massive. Uh, penalty that we impose on ourselves. Um, and for me, if, to get to a position where we're coming to high-speed high rail mm. this late and um, doing it uh, and then truncating mm. it um, is, is uh, hugely uh, disadvantageous to the way the country is perceived. Um, and I do think your point, um, Adam, mm. about uh, the uncertainty, um, you know, decision order counter order mm. disorder 
um, creates, adds to the cost, actually, because it means that all of the players, whether you're a contractor, whether in supply chain, you build in a premium uh, for the risk of decisions being made later that are going to cut the ground from under your, under your feet. So where, where the uh, blame lies is these things are always massively complicated. But it's, um, this, is, this is something where I'm a great opponent of us being a prisoner of sunk cost. You know, we spend all this money, so we've got to carry on. But actually, this is something where you just got to sharpen it up. Instead of saying this is all terrible and it's all costing too much, so let's stop doing it, find a way of doing it better. How, why, why would we not want to do that? Virginia. Yeah, I'm not an expert on HS2. I am an expert on spending 10 hours a week on Avanti uh, going through a crew to get to Holyhead. It's deeply frustrating. Um, I think it comes down to these sort of large infrastructure projects. They are uh, enormous projects. And I think we all look back to the Elizabeth line. If we look at the Thames Tideway Tunnel, if we look Crossrail, these are all huge, huge projects. And if we extrapolate that to nuclear, um, look at Hinkley, uh, Hinkley Point C with, with EDF. Um, you know, that project, if we can have um, the that's uh, the same reactors at Sizewell C and then the same reactors at Wilver, that's simply going to bring down the cost. That's going to yeah. um, have shared learnings. Um, I mean, Sizewell C will be 85% of Hinkley. Hinkley will be 92.50 a megawatt hour for the energy, and it'll go down to 89 once we've got Sizewell C. So there's already um, you know a benefit from actually having that fleet mentality. So for me, it is all about the UK government actually having a plan and delivering yeah. it that, that plan and, and, and becoming more um, expert at what we're doing, sticks and knitting. Alistair, any views on HS2? Uh, only that uh, I, was, uh, I was with the chairman of Crossrail and the outgoing CEO of uh, HS2 six weeks ago. And the advice from Crossrail chairman was, on the day it opens, everyone pats you on the back and you're a hero. You've just got to keep going, keep your head down, keep battling. Yeah. Uh, so I, that's the only point I make. It's the salami slicing causes uncertainty, and it's the same in energy, it's the same in rail, it's the same in all this. You've got a plan, you've got to stick to it. So let's come to this question now about uh, about the supply chain. Yeah. We've just done a case study, I think, published today, looks at Sophie, on offshore wind. And one of the criticisms of the government in offshore wind is it actually failed to capture enough of the supply chain for the UK. So it focused on... You know, getting turbines built, but didn't capture it, didn't think enough about the accompanying industrial strategy. Yeah. Do you think that's a risk now about uh, about nuclear? And, and so, another question, just from that, I mean, you know, every saying all this will be making sometime next year, but there is also a possible event that will happen sometime next year called a general election. Uh, you know, how are you factoring that into all these lovely timetables that you have? A very good question. It's the same one my board asks me each quarter. Uh, let me let me start there. So there is cross-party consensus on nuclear, on small modular reactors. Uh, an election causes delay inevitably with new ministers coming in and reviewing plans and thinking them through. So uh, my push, my pitch, my ask is that government... A, have a late general election, but, but B, deliver on the timelines they've set out because that's all within... That's all, all credible, all capable, all achievable. Just... Chris asked a very fair question on... How do you get that balance right between um, UK components and overseas components? So, example, I could go overseas and procure a lot of components from European suppliers because they've been making this stuff for decades. It's de-risked. 
Now, that has got a financial cost to it, and it will cost less to do that than to have UK manufacturers do it. That's just a fact. So how do we work against that, deal with that? We know that those are the circumstances. The answer is to exactly your point, start investing now, start looking at where the big opportunities are for the supply chain. So where's got the lowest investment cost with the maximum upside? So we've designed our SMR, so there's no bespoke components. Mm. It's got a, the, the engineers were given, um, they don't like me saying this, mm. an IKEA toolkit. You know, these, <laughs> these are the components you can use to build your power station. They're all known mm. components in the supply chain now. So you're not going to have capability problems. You might have capacity mm. problems, but you won't have capability. That's much harder to overcome. So what we need to do is sit down with government, sit down with the NEMRC, and go through that catalogue and work out which are the components the UK is going to be the world leader in and supply to me and supply to other SMR vendors and export. That, that really is the way to do it. But again, Virginia mentioned working in mm. parallel. I, I sat down and wrote a list of all the things we need to do in parallel. This is one of them. It's one of dozens, isn't it? And, and it's how do you prioritise and how do you make sure it is prioritised? Because it should be. So, Alistair, this is an Institute for Government event. So uh, I want to ask the Machinery of Government question, which is an Institute for Government sort of question. Does the creation of DESNES mm. and it hiding it off from the business department make that Chris's, the answer to Chris's question harder because it requires two departments with slightly different sets of priorities Three. to help? And DSIT as well. I've forgotten DSIT, sorry, Michelle Donnellan. Uh, does that new structure actually make this harder or does it not matter? Uh, it it, I wouldn't say it makes it harder. What I would say is it gives energy its prominence again, and it means it's around the top table and it's being talked about. And supply chains are a fundamental part of it. The benefit is you've got this great British nuclear entity. Mm -hmm. And if I can reflect on the comments from panel members mm -hmm. earlier, in GBN, you've got civil servants, you've got academics, advisors, mm -hmm. and you've got industry all working together. So you haven't got that sort of single... Um, policy mindset civil service grouping in uh, in DESNES, in the business department. You've got a much broader ability knowledge set out there. So that does de-risk and mean that uh, I'm less concerned. Okay, so anyone to come in on the supply chain? No, I'm going to take some more questions. So if you go here and then back to there. Yeah, my left side strategy. Yes. Thank you. Um, oh, is this on? Yeah. Um, Jamie Jenkins, Royal London uh, Policy Director. Just a uh, if I may just take us back for a second, there's a lot of rhetoric around the fact that target dates for change are not the key thing, and the key thing is actually the plan and how we get there for all the various things that we need to do for net zero. And the most kind of talked about one recently was pushing back of the 2030 to 35 date for phasing out of petrol and diesel cars. So both the Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition say that it's not about the target date, but they are arguing, arguably, about the target date and saying one saying 2035, one saying they put it back to 2030, as far as I'm aware. Just a question on that, because it, it's quite a good example, is it not, and here's my question, um, of where a target date has actually driven quite an explosion of innovation in the world of electric vehicles without a plan. Okay, and let's go back there. So that's one for you to be reflecting on. Simon. Thanks. Uh, Simon Verling, now of KPMG, once of Whitehall. Uh, my question really is about the 
governance of the net zero system going forward and whether we build the commercial and delivery capability, and particularly Francis picking up on your themes there, inside Whitehall or in a delivery agency. My own view, having used to be a DG in government, is it's really, really hard to retain uh, bright young things in the department because the public sector doesn't pay well enough uh, and people move around too quickly. So my argument would be let's build a delivery capability at arm's length and have that kind of capability in a kind of Bank of England for Energy style model, still accountable to the government in terms of policy, but ultimately an expert body at arm's length. What, what would your view on that be? Okay, so do we agree with Simon? So let's take this point about the date of change, because, you know, very few said don't change dates or whatever. I mean, is it sensible to set a really ambitious date then to see that actually others aren't aligning on that date because we have the EU going back to 2035. Um, maybe we've got that activity, maybe just knocking out a little bit of the market with some residual things. I mean, is that very destabilizing? Adam, what well, do you think it, about it, that? It depends on the approach that you're taking for delivering the project. So if you're taking more of a kind of mm. agile, iterative type approach, then target dates aren't really much use anyway mm. because you, you, you're kind of doing these smaller steps and each of those smaller steps will itself have a target which uh, is moving you in the right general mm -hmm. direction that type of approach i think is helpful when you've got mm -hmm. kind of financial constraints mm -hmm. that you've got to work mm -hmm. with and, and and so on and you can have much much mm -hmm. tighter control it does mean though that you have much less uncertainty over what the final date of a, mm -hmm. of a kind of usable end product is if you like so i think that that's that's one aspect i think if you're going for the kind of linear mm -hmm. um you, you know Full, full cost and target date and scope from the outset, that's fine uh, as long as you recognise mm. that at the beginning there's going to be a lot of uncertainty within 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 the scope and so on because things change. So, you know, we, we've talked mm. a lot about HS2. Mm. You know, they're, 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 they've had to, had to estimate mm. the cost of implementing uh, ticketing machines and systems in stations for which the technology doesn't yet exist. And then we're going to hit them over the head in 10 years' time when they say it's going to cost differently to what, what, what they put in it. You know. So I think we have to recognise that they'll, the estimates will get better over time, yeah. and that includes mm. on the cost and the, and the scope mm. and the kind of the target yeah. date. Um, and it'll be, there'll be a range in the beginning. So I think some of that's in the reporting, and, and, and I'm kind of against the mm. kind of hard data on some of these things. I think it's better to put in a range, and that range narrows over time. Absolutely right. Um, do you agree with... I mean, do you think... Here we go again when the government sort of, you know, one day, I think on the Monday, was telling the automotive industry it's definitely 2030, and on the Tuesday was saying it's 2035 now. Did you think, oh, my God, you know, yet again, the government's moving? Or do you think, actually, that's quite sensible, you know, what the Prime Minister would describe as proportionate pragmatism? You know, well, I mean, you, you can argue it both ways, and, and um, it's... It, I get the argument of it's pragmatic and, and the UK is doing very well on um, uh, progress towards net zero and you can tweak the policies, but there is a downside in uh, the uncertainty premium um, that, that um, is charged on, on when governments change their minds relatively um, close to, to, to a particular date. 
Shall I talk about the machinery? Wait, I'm going to come sure, on to that. I'm just going to come to Virginia. Yeah, I How just, does it go down with the constituents in Ernest Moore? Well, well, I just wanted to add to the proportional yeah. and pragmatic. Yeah. I would add to that um, the practical and the compassionate. Mm. And uh, you know, we've we've had an awful lot of challenges in the last three mm. years: COVID, uh, Ukraine, and I think it's important to focus on that practical and that compassionate um, element. And I think if we see what's happened in Wales on the 17th of September, they rolled out this 20 mile an hour default. Mm. Um, uh, Road, um, uh, uh, road, road speed limits, and that was uh, announced with really you know, didn't didn't go to the electorate. Um, they had a one hour debate in the Senate last July, uh, and I think it's really important that we bring people with us. Four hundred forty thousand people have voted a petition to actually change that. That's uh, we're getting up to more than the the number of people that actually voted for the Senate. So I think it's important that we are compassionate, that we are practical, but that we also bring people with us. I think it's key. And Virginia, just uh, sort of coming back a bit more onto net zero, what's the electricity, the electric car charging infrastructure in your bit of Wales like? Most charging infrastructure, I think London leads the pack in availability of charging infrastructure. Yeah. Is it a problem? Is there much take up in your constituency? You can imagine that might um, be one I, of the harder to yeah, reach. Yeah, well, it's, it's, actually, it's actually evolved labouring in Cardiff. But what I would say, it's very rural. Wales is very, very rural. But I think in order to actually get uh, companies to invest in hybrid and electric vehicles, mm. we need to make it as easy as possible. So we do need to actually have these um, EV mm. chargings uh, and investing there. We do need to have a look at the scrappage schemes mm. as well uh, to encourage mm. people. And also the cost. The cost of actually you know, buying these cars mm. is, is, is very, very uh, daunting. So I, I, absolutely, we do need to. But also, so uh, new, new homes, I believe every home should have an EV charger, uh, with, without a doubt. Mm. Okay. And Alistair, I mean, just on sort of business uncertainty, do your board sort of look and say, look what the government's just done on EVs? Are they going to do this to us? And does that unnerve you about the policy-making environment? I, I swerved that one entirely. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I do actually just want to pick up on... So does it... does does governments change policy? Uh, government shift. Um, they are pretty solid on um, nuclear energy infrastructure, yeah. uh, okay. but, but governments respond to, mm. to to events. Can I just offer a slightly different perspective from a commercial point yeah. of view? So, uh, the Institute of Government, civil servants are having to deal with commercial entities like yeah. my own coming and yeah. offering timelines and mm. costs. And when you're in that sales mode, you can overpromise and you can eventually underdeliver. And I think that's a really important thing that we've got to get out of the habit of doing as industry so when we've got when we're giving timetables and costs mm. they've really got to be credible and underpinned and real um, and because we've got to get past that sort of sales pitch um, mm. and into the, the world of reality and again in the SMR world mm. I've written down here you know paper into steel mm. we're at the point of turning paper into steel now so I, I don't want to tell you I, mm. you know, I can give you a power station in 2029 because that's just not credible it has to be founded on evidence-led numbers. And as an industry, we've got to start being a bit more real about time and cost and control. Do government challenge you on the unrealism of your costs? Because there must be a tendency just to think, God, that's a bit cheaper than we thought. Uh, we'll bank that. They, they do. You get you get a spectrum of, of, of views. Um, but, but again, many people are not suitably qualified mm. to understand or unpick the costs and the schedules. Mm. Okay, which is a brilliant segue into Simon's question. If we're assuming these sort of churning civil servants, you know, bunch of generalists, 
very few people with sort of engineering background, not enough procurement professionals, whatever, are not going to do it. Do we actually need to create a delivery entity for not just GBN, um, Labour, I think, has this plan for GB energy. Yep. Does that overtake GB nuclear? It'll Does that get subsumed? In. All right. Anyway, um, <laughs> if they ever get there. So do we need some different sort of delivery entity to push this out from government and enable it to bring in highly paid uh, former consultants uh, like Simon <laughs> to run it uh, at huge extra expense, but with huge amount of skills who will stick there for the duration rather than just see it as a sort of you know, moment to move on to a better job, you know, because permanent secretary and some other completely unrelated department job is going. Adam, how would you structure that bit of intermediate architecture? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I think it's about doing what we currently do better mm. rather than trying to generate something completely new. Um, and if, if I reflect on a couple of practical mm. things, you know, we're talking about net zero, we talked about procurement mm. before, a good example. Um, you know, one of the things that happens mm. in the procurement processes for projects is that, um, uh, that they'll be looking at risk. Um, at risk both in terms of the cost but also in terms of the delivery side of things so if you've got if I just take a, 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 an example let's say you're talking about a, a construction project uh, and a company says well we're going to use a new form of uh, of green concrete which is much better for the environment but that green concrete has got much more uncertainty associated with it than maybe the less green alternative which is tried and tested um, so how, how well is the procurement mm. process set up to prioritise those things mm. which are going to contribute more to, for example, net zero than, than, say, the cost side of things. So I think we've got better at doing some of that over time, mm. but I think there's still more that could be done to, 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 to help with that. Um, so, yeah, I, I would do what we're doing better. So uh, you should keep current structures, but do it better. Virginia. Well, the, the Chancellor announced this afternoon that we'd be um, freezing civil servant recruitment to save a billion pounds. So I think it's um, not great timing. <laughs> I'm not sure there'll be huge numbers of them, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it could be money well spent. But uh, anyway, Alastair, uh, there are, there what are, do you think? There are these um, bodies like the NIC and the CCC that you could work with. I, I get the, the difficulty is once it gets pushed out, it's how much influence it has and you can choose to listen to the NIC when it suits you and choose not to when it doesn't so if you're pushing a delivery an arm's length delivery body it makes sense practically but often politicians can choose to not listen so Francis I mean one of the big things that was delivered well at least we thought so uh during your time in government was the Olympics and we had that sort of quite expert mm -hmm. Olympic delivery authority headed up by John Armish and various other people who've gone on to big jobs in government. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at saying, do we need something else, something a bit like that with that sort of different capability and those different people to actually, you know, deliver a, what is a radically transformed energy system, which is what we're talking about. Do you think there's a case for that? Or? Yes, there is a case for it. I mean, I, but I think we need to get smarter at doing these things differently. And, and at the risk of sounding obsessive, uh, which I am, um, uh, we are a prisoner of this culture that everything has to be within a departmental mm. budget. With, um, and, mm. and so what that leads to is um, constantly moving around the machinery of government to try mm. and find a department mm. which covers all of, in this case, energy and net zero. But of course... Uh, even with this Department of Energy Net Zero, it only covers some of mm. what is involved in the overall programme mm. 
which is a whole of government mm. program. Um, and uh, other governments uh, have found New Zealand, for example, mm. easier, it's much mm. smaller, um, and they can do things mm. more quickly. They found some ways of creating kind of cross-departmental mm. organizations, structures, um, which have their own budget, which have a kind of mm. not a budget which isn't, which is dedicated mm. to this. Um, and, um, and, and the review I've just completed for the government, which um, the world is waiting for with um, barely contained excitement um, for its publication. Well, we <laughs> um, uh, and uh, uh, someone who read it said, Francis, you've written War and Peace. I said, no, it's much more fun than War and Peace. <laughs> um, and, um, but, but I was specifically excluded from looking at the accounting officer model. Um, and which meant that I could not uh, mm. offer mm. Uh, thoughts on how you how you address this, which I was quite relieved about because it's very mm. very hard uh, to do. I think the the difficulty. Mm. You're quite right. The Olympics model worked very well. That was a project. Mm. It was a complex mm. project, but it was a, a finite mm. project. Yeah. Um, Net Zero is much bigger than a project. It's a, it's a program. program. It's a, a mm. hugely multifaceted uh, program, uh, and. Um, you need to you need to think of it in a different way. And the danger with what you described mm. of having a kind of delivery mm. agency is that you get far too much separation between people making the policy mm. and those charged with delivering it. One of the fundamental problems with our system mm. is the lack of the the distance there is far too often between people charged with implementation from the people deciding policy. Um, and, you know, which is why you so often have policies being developed uh, without reference mm. to the implementation challenges, which mean that, you know, the ability mm. for those expert in implementation with all of the, which isn't just, as I say, project mm. management, procurement, mm. financial, all these other things involved, um, without the ability for them to push back and challenge uh, in a kind of iterative to and fro mm. way before you get going. Uh, and so I think the danger with saying, sort of chucking over the mm. wall to an implementation mm. agency, here's the net zero program, go away and do it, is that you then end up with too big a gap and you want to be able, the, 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 mm. it isn't a specific structure that solves this. It's a different culture mm. which brings much closer, to get, closer together policy making and implementation and frankly, removes the dominance of the policy-making Mandarin stream in Whitehall and has a much more balanced view in terms of status um, and value added. I did, one of the things I looked at in this review was how, what's the proportion of people in the policy profession, as it's called, who are in the senior civil service compared with those in the procurement, commercial, mm -hmm. uh, financial management, and so mm -hmm. on. And it was a multiple. So the status attributed, not necessarily the same as pay, the status given to people in the policy mm -hmm. profession is consistently much higher than the, the implementation uh, professions. Uh, and that's just emblematic. That just is a, is a symptom uh, of the problem, which is, is far greater. It's a cultural thing. Okay, well, I think that's where I'm going to have to call it a day. So uh, if you could join me in thanking our fantastic panel.
And could I just rethank the Association of Project Management for helping us put this event on and drinks are on Alistair in the bar because of the SMR <laughs> announcement today. So thank you all very much.